Welcome to the Marketing Stir Podcast by Starista, probably the most entertaining marketing podcast you're going to put in your ears. I'm Jared Walls, Associate Producer and Starista's Creative Copy Manager. The goal of this podcast is to chat with industry leaders to get their take on the current challenges of the market, but also have a little fun along the way. In this episode, Vincent and AJ catch up with Ruth Stevens, B2B Marketing Consultant. She delves into the importance of face-to-face communication, but also clarifies why you shouldn't try to recreate the conference experience with virtual events. AJ upgrades his watch strap, and Vincent wears something elegant. Give it a listen. Ladies and gentlemen, it's me. I know, I'm on video, that's crazy. We are coming to you from video, the marketing stir. It's me, Vincent Petrofessa, one of your hosts, the VP of B2B products and partnerships here at Starista, my co-host. I always say I'd run through a wall for him. One of those like paper walls, let's be realistic here, (laughs) but he is my commander in chief here at Starista, my co-host, Mr. AJ Gupta, what's going on? Vincent, I had this whole thing prepared about your Hawaiian shirt, but I see you're not wearing one, so no, sure I've happened. I know I used to. I usually do rock a Hawaiian shirt from the dad collection at Kohl's, uh, you know. But no, today I went a little more. It's a little chillier here, and I went with a long sleeve. I went elegant because of our next guest. Gotcha. Oh, that makes sense. Uh, I did upgrade my uh, watch strap full orange today. Full orange. I love it. You know, you have, you're representing the orange today. Uh, I don't see a haircut. Did we get a haircut? Oh man. I, I knew you would bring that up. You should, yeah. You, yeah. yeah, I'm, yeah. I'm also the chief grooming officer here at Starista. <laughs> you know what? I, I did consider it. Okay. And then I thought COVID is still pretty bad. So maybe I keep my hair. All right. You made me feel bad now. See, I was, uh, AJ knows this. I always bust his chops about, and when he does get a haircut, he gets like three snips and it's like $45. So I'm like, what did you even do? This is ridiculous. It's kind of like you say cancer and then you can't ask anything else. You can't ask anything else. Yes. You say COVID and like, I have to stop, but let's begin because we have a very special guest. And what better guest? A friend of Starista, a friend of ours. I miss her dearly because we always see each other at networking events. Uh, You think B2B, you say B2B, you think this woman. Ladies and gentlemen, please, a warm marketing stir welcome. Ruth Stevens, what's going on, Ruth? Thanks so much for the nice introduction, Vincent. And I notice you don't have any trouble getting your hair cut during COVID. What's up with that? I know this haircut, uh, you know, this is not my normal haircut. I still have to go. I, I tempered it a little bit. I go instead of once a week, like a madman, I go three times a month. So I go every 10 days. It's kind of strategic. I have it planned out for the rest of the month. I know it's weird. A little quirk that I have, one of many. But, I think uh, it's because your wife is maybe more demanding than Ajay's, who's very tolerant. Yes, yes. But my wife is very demanding. Uh, you know, let's put that on the podcast. Maybe she'll finally listen. Uh, she's like, I don't have time to listen to your podcast. I see, I listen to you at home and I don't like that. So yes, it's good. Ruth, what have you been up to? We miss you. Uh, we would have seen you 12 times by now. I know, Vincent, you and I cross paths in New York City so often. I'm just 
desolate to miss all the fun and, and mayhem that comes along with encountering you. Uh, thank you, Ben. <laughs> we, we often have fun. It, it ends up with, uh, you know, a big crew. It ends up with drinks. It ends up with talking shop. I last was on a, not a panel, but I, we were on the same uh, bill, if you will, I, uh, you know, when we're speaking at the B2B marketing community, B2Bmarketing.net, which would have been in person in, Ignite Ch in Chicago. Conference. Yeah. Ignite. We well, missed yeah, our which... trip to Chicago, but it turned out to be a pretty interesting event, didn't you think? I was a moderator and you were an esteemed speaker. I heard <laughs> great things about your talk, by the way. Thank you. Thank you. You hear that, AJ? Esteemed. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because uh, give in, you this tourist and knighthood. I love in these it. kinds love of it. speaking engagements. Unfortunately, esteem is about all you get. That's all you get. I like that knighthood idea. Sir talks a lot. That would be pretty cool. Yeah, you know, that, <laughs> Sir but, Vincent. Sir Vincent, it is I. <laughs> but yeah, no, Ruth, you. Uh, you know, I think there, there's so many conferences that you've turned me on to. I think I, we didn't even oh. really know about the B2B Ignite. Uh, in the conference or the B2B. Right. I, I frankly didn't yeah. even know about the B2B marketing community until you told us about that. You always have your finger on the pulse of all things marketing, especially B2B, having written multiple books on that. And I'll mention those later and embarrass you, you. a little bit more with my, uh, with my over-the-top intros, I know. But you deserve it. And the B2B marketing, we, we've since then have had so many people on from that event, you know, and I thank you for that. Great. No, my pleasure. I do try to keep my finger on the pulse of what's going on in B2B marketing. And every time I turn around, there's some new development, some new technologies, some new practices. And of course, with COVID, there have been so many rapid changes in buying behavior, of course, and also uh, marketers are trying to take advantage of the opportunities that that remain and do their best and adapt. So there's a lot going on. Absolutely. And one of the things, Ruth, that you always, again, have your finger on the pulse is like, you know, what are you seeing? I'm going to get right into it. You know, some of the questions here. Sure. What are some of the, you know, some of the trends you're seeing in, in B2B marketing uh, in general and more specifically during this time? Yeah, well, I would point to two in particular. One is in the absence of face-to-face -face meetings, which have been a huge part and um, a traditional part of the marketing mix in B2B. In fact, some B2B marketers spend as much as 60% of their budgets on trade shows and conferences. The average is more in the low 20s. But it's huge. And the reason it's so valuable is because it's the, the first stage in the sales process, right? It's having a face-to-face -face conversation. And if you can get a prospect to fly in at his or her own expense <laughs> and meet with you at, a, at an event, you've really you know, uh, cut the sales cycle down considerably. And even though on a cost per contact basis, face-to-face -face events are the single most expensive element of the B2B marketing mix. They're also really effective if you've got the right people in the room. Now, what, what do you do when you can't have face-to-face? -face? Well, of course, you go virtual. And the conferences in the B2B world have all 
pretty much converted to virtual, as you and I know, Vincent, from the, the Ignite event. And most of the stuff in the fall has already announced. There were some holdouts, but just in the last couple of weeks, they have, with great reluctance, um, you know, admitted that they, they're going virtual. And so that means that we marketers can still take advantage of that opportunity to have those meetings. They're not face-to-face, -face, but they can certainly be on video. And, and we can also take advantage of people's renewed comfort with Zoom and other meeting platforms to have sales meetings in this environment. And that, of course, sort of goes without saying, I'm sure salespeople have been trying to get their customers and prospects on Zoom calls for some time now. But even as a marketing tool, I'm seeing B2B marketers setting up their own private events, mostly peer-to-peer -peer small events, not, you know, massive things. But it's an really awesome tool for having a small event, maybe five, six people, invitation only, around a certain theme or uh, around a, a topic that is bugging um, the, the prospects that you can solve. Second piece, though, is I think B2B marketers are taking the opportunity of COVID uh, to clean up their acts in a couple of ways. One is they're really is realizing that omni-channel is so important and and that they need to be able to reach their customers and prospects wherever they are through whichever device they happen to be using. And so that means they need identity graph, um, ways to find everybody wherever they are. They also need to link their business record with their consumer record and allow them to um, uh, understand their customers better and, and reach them at home better. And they also need to clean up their marketing databases and get that append work, that updating, that hygiene work done once and for all. Well, it's never done once and for all. That's a, not a good way of putting it, but at least get it up to to speed and put in place a process ongoing for keeping it it clean and complete. Yeah, it's actually interesting. Most of the time, uh, or actually every CRM just allows you to enter an individual as they are today, uh, in spite of knowing that there's such huge turnover these days at jobs, and then you just kind of lose that person because all you know about them is that they work there. So uh, that's always been fascinating to me where we, the CRMs are not even designed in a way by default where you can enter their home address or keep tab of them as an individual versus their business uh, job title. Right. That's a design flaw, isn't it, in the in the software. But one thing I have noticed is that most LinkedIn profiles include a personal email versus a business email because the individuals in business are fully aware that they may change jobs <laughs> and and they want to be found. So you're seeing a lot of Gmail and Yahoo addresses in those LinkedIn right. profiles, right? And Ruth, you wrote an entire book about trade shows, if memory serves right. I did, yeah. Uh, thank you for letting me hype my book, which I happen to have a copy of right here. Nice. Um, this, this was a real 
a really interesting project for me, which I worked on when I first went out on my own as a, a sole practitioner, a consultant. And I was noticing just from my personal experience that I was having a tough time as an attendee at trade shows getting getting to the point with exhibitors. For one thing, I was pretty critical of the signage they were using in the exhibit hall. They would have these really vague branding type of images behind them in their booths. And I would walk up and down the aisles looking for new ideas and, and to, to find interesting new products. I mean, that's why we go to exhibit halls, right? And um, when you're walking the hall, and I'm sure you guys have a similar experience, you, you have to decide which booth to stop at. And so you use the signage as a clue for whether there's something of interest for you. But the signage was so vague, I, I find, found it really dissatisfying. And then, so I actually wrote a column being you know, a little bit snarky about how exhibitors need to lose the buzzwords and get really real with their signage. The, the other problem I had, which I also wrote a column about, was that they couldn't really explain their value proposition when I uh, would stop them at their booth, stop it by their booth and have a conversation. They would have all this gobbledygook, oh, we do this, we do that. And it, there wasn't anything that clearly differentiated them from their competitors and clearly explained what the benefit was to a prospect like me. And that's sort of marketing messaging 101, right? A value proposition that's clear. So I wrote a, another snarky article uh, or a column about that. And that sort of put me in mind to um, maybe explore more deeply. So I got in touch with some of the trade show uh, what do you call it? The, the exhibitor community. There's a gigantic media world of, of shows and publications around trade show marketing. And I dug in and realized I, I could, I, I thought really add some value in explaining how to get more oomph from your, your trade show and event marketing budget. So that was the objective of that book. Any, any plans to update that with the uh, virtual conference? Hmm. Mm -hmm. I hadn't even thought about that, uh, Jay. I'm going to have to keep that in mind. Thanks for the tip. Okay, just, just in case conferences go extinct, your book will serve for future humans as a reference point <laughs> of how right. they were done. <laughs> You know, even, I mean, ho we all hope that we'll get back to face-to-face, -to -face, but I think people's comfort with this medium has grown to the extent that people are recognizing there's going to be value even after we return to face-to-face. -to -face. Of course, we all love face-to-face. -face. We're social animals. <laughs> but um, it, what I've always noticed is that media channels tend to be additive versus replacement. Um, you know, the radio was not replaced by television and television was not replaced by the internet. The, we keep adding. The only one that 
sort of did die out was the telegraph, but <laughs> I, I, I'm guessing that virtual conferences and events will have a place in the, in the marketing toolkit going forward. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you know, I've been hearing a lot about, and, and as you mentioned, Ruth, you know, we, we all love our in-person conferences. Tourist is really big on the in-person. We love talking to our clients and meeting prospects because it shows a personal side of who we are. Exactly. But, you know, I, I've also heard a lot of conferences when they do come back. And, you know, there'll be a mix of virtual and in-person. Maybe they're realizing that maybe they film a portion of the conference and make that available to people. Because one of the things we've noticed is that people are starving for content and they're starving for, look, webinars have gone through the roof. We've had some people on that have said, oh yeah, normal, we have like 21 people at our webinar. We had 5,000. Even you look at the popularity of this show, thank you so much everyone out there. We thought this was gonna just be, you know, 13 people listening to our podcast. And we've, you know, since, you know, hit 30,000 by the time this airs, hopefully 60,000. So what are your thoughts about the mix moving forward. Yeah, I, I've seen webinars and podcasts explode just as, as you have. And one of the recommendations I'm making to B2B marketers is that they need to invest in those two areas. We're all being asked to be content producers, publishers. The, uh, the, what, what I've learned in, in this virtual world is that we have to rethink how we deliver our content in certainly in the in the virtual con conference arena, it's not like a face to face. So we shouldn't be trying to re recreate the trade show experience, for example, or the seminar experience in a webinar. It's a different animal, so we need to think about it differently. In fact, some observers are advising us that in the conference world, we need to think of it more like television. And so it's a combination of entertainment and information. And the speakers need to be well produced, well prepared, lots of shortcuts, lots of good lighting, all of those things that a, a, a TV back office would be organizing for a, a production. It's really a, a more difficult, but once you get the hang of it, it's much more effective for the viewer. Yeah, no, and, and I think that, I think, you know, you're right. And I think that, you know, those are some trends, as you mentioned. Uh, what are some other trends you're seeing with, with you know, some of the B2B? Uh, is sales, and I heard sales enablement is something that's been big. We had Joel Harrison on recently, and he was talking about that. What are your thoughts about sales enablement? Being, uh, That's so interesting. I just wrote an article on sales enablement last week, and it, it'll it'll be coming out next week. So I should call up Joel and. <laughs> yeah, see, I, I honestly I didn't know that. See, look at no, that. I should have did my research, right? But it's uh, well, look, what, a what a natural segue. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, when I worked at IBM in the in the late '90s, sales enablement was code for presentations and collateral material that marketing would prepare and sales would sort of use in their process. But it's gotten much more sophisticated in recent years, especially with the arrival of technology. So it 
appears that sales tech has adopted enablement as one of the functionalities that they can serve. And it is a kind of content asset management library so that salespeople can easily find good stuff to send out to their customers and prospects. And it also includes uh, tools and environments that allow the sales process to be more free-flowing, productive, and, and short. So uh, sales enablement has become a real thing. There's a, uh, there's a professional association of sales enablement specialists. And it's even gotten to the point, I, I gather, where it's gotten to be political, meaning sales enablement, hmm, where does the budget come from? Who, you know, how does it report? Uh, uh, you know, who's in charge here? Is, and the experts say, if it reports to sales, it will be ineffective. <laughs> Other people say, if it reports to marketing, it won't really serve the needs of salespeople. So I think there's still some issues that need to be hashed out, but it, it's a thing. Ruth, tell us a little bit more about how you got into this uh, industry to begin with. Oh, thanks, Ajay. I, I stumbled into it when I was recruited at Book of the Month Club. I started my direct marketing career there. And uh, after about seven years there at Time Warner, I was recruited to Ziff Davis, which at the time was the, the leader of computer industry publishing. So PC Magazine, Computer Shopper, and wonderful advertising vehicles that were riding the rise of hardware and software technology, the explosive growth. And it was an ad sales machine, an amazing company. And I was recruited into a division there called Computer Library that sold content that was crammed onto a CD and sold by monthly subscription to buyers of technology who needed updated information about how to do enterprise purchasing. It was sold through a tele telephone-based sales force right around the corner here uh, in one, one Park Avenue South. And those guys were territory-based and they needed leads. They were selling about $1,000 a year subscription. And I was hired in to use direct marketing principles to generate leads for them. And I was like a kid in a candy store because I had the entire Ziff Davis media empire at my fingertips to, at no cost. Well, I mean, there was some cost, but it was in-house media. So all the pubs, the databases of all the subscribers, the trade shows and conferences that they ran. And so all I needed was a strong offer and a good creative, and I could get people to raise their hands and express interest in the computer library publications. So that got me hooked on B2B. And from there I went to IBM and after that, I went to a couple of startups, but ended up going out on my own as a B2B specialist. I've really just enjoyed it for the last 20 years. 
been a blast. And obviously, kind of one of your passions is traveling, which I presume goes pretty well with working for yourself. Yes, having that flexibility has allowed me to combine my love of travel with my business. And I've learned that, I mean, I didn't learn this the hard way. I sort of instinctively knew that I was not going to be able to get consulting business in foreign markets. I, I just don't know enough about the local buying process, the media. I, you know, I, I would never presume to be able to advise outside of North America on marketing strategies, but I could do corporate trainings. I could teach in business schools. I could do, uh, do speaking in, at seminars and writing and so forth. So I've actually had quite a bit of international business. And about five years ago, I hit on this amazing formula that I learned is known as academic tourism. And what it, what it involves is calling up the dean in the top business school in a interesting city, and I don't mean literally calling, but you see what I mean, and offering myself as a visiting adjunct professor. And more times than not, I get hired. And these last two years, I was teaching in really one of the top business schools in India, the Indian Institute of Management in Bangalore, arguably the second or third business school in the entire country. Before that, I was at Hong Kong University of Science and Technology, and I've also taught in other countries before that, Singapore Management University. But I, it's just been a blast for me because I get to put down roots, stay there for five weeks, 10 weeks, even several months, uh, or like three months, and maybe live on campus, maybe not, but really dig into the culture and get to know people and have something to do other than visiting cathedrals and museums. And mm. really, it's, it's been a wonderful opportunity. And then I come back to New York and I teach at NYU Stern in the springtime. So until this year, I was having a wonderful <laughs> autumnal external, you know, teaching opportunity in these beautiful cities. I was lined up to be in Istanbul this fall, but boo-hoo, that's off the plate for now. Academic I, I, tourism, I, I love it. I'll have to put that in Urban Dictionary. Yeah, that's it. <laughs> Please do. Let, let's start go teaching, uh, you know, across <laughs> the world, AJ, me and you, let's do it. But well, I, I, I think a lot of us want to be Ruth Stevens when we grow up. Definitely. <laughs> I, and that's what I love about Ruth is I, I, I travel vicariously through Ruth Stevens. And Ruth is always, <laughs> you know, and, I, and you're very much, you immerse yourself. In, in, you know, I'm, I'm fortunate to, to be one of Ruth's, uh, you know, friends and, and also on, on Facebook to really see some of the nitty gritty, but even on LinkedIn, uh, of those of you who can follow Ruth Stevens, she, you know, she'll teach there. And I love your pictures. Like I, I met this amazing family and now we're making like paella and, uh, you know, from a local farmer's market. And I'm like, that's amazing. And, and I, I thought of you, uh, you know, when, you know, some of the travel ban happened. I was like, you know, I know that's a passion of Ruth's and, uh, you know, just to see how she was doing and all that. But yeah, it's a big part of who you are. And, and but the education piece of it, 
Thank you. And, and the education piece, you know, in New York, I, Ruth is also very involved in the marketing edge and the uh, DMCNY for which uh, I'm a part past of. Past president. Past president. Uh, I am a current board member. AJ and Starista have supported the yes. marketing edge and DMCNY. Uh, Silver Apple Awards this year. In yes, November. can't wait. Yeah, come on out. That'll be virtual. But a shout out to DMCNY. Uh, plug. You know, but, you know, Ruth, I wanted to talk to you about the, let's, let's talk about LinkedIn, right? One of the things we love to ask our guests, and I think you'd be great to, to hear from about this. We asked our guests a message that resonates with you. How does someone have Ruth Stevens answer them in LinkedIn? What's a message that you say, okay, I will accept this person. And then what's something that you say, that is a pet peeve of yours when someone reaches out to mm, you. I see. So you're talking about connection invitations, right? Yes. Link, link invitations. So I've developed a bit of a policy on this and I'm, I'm quite flexible, but generally I'm very open to links, but if, uh, but I'm much more open if there's a personal message accompanying. I think that's possibly what you're what you're after here, Vincent. But there are also some some no-nos if the the uh, inviter doesn't have a photo. I just I just won't link with them, no matter what. Mm -hmm. And if they are using a company logo instead of a personal headshot, that's another no-no in my book. I think it's a it's disrespectful of the personal intent of the LinkedIn platform. I mean, there are company pages, go do that on your company page, but on your personal profile page, I, I think it's important to have a, a headshot. The other thing is, I know darn well that most connectors want something from me. Like they want to sell something to me, or they want access to my network or something, but that's okay. That's what we're all about. We're in business, right? <laughs> so if they send just a quick note saying, gee, you, you have an interesting background. I'd like to get to know you. Then I'm, I'm in, you know, I'll, I'll accept. And I have other friends who are very tight about their policy. They say, if, if I've never met you before, I don't accept. And I think that's frankly ridiculous. <laughs> I'll tell you one, one little story. Um, because of COVID, I had um, uh, at NYU Stern, I was teaching a class in international business that included a trip to, where were we going? To Peru during spring break. And we're, my, my classes were gonna meet a cement company there and write a business plan for them. You know, it's a, a school school activity and so we couldn't go to Peru and also in the second half what were the what were the students going to work on um, could they possibly develop a, a strategic plan for this cement company if they hadn't actually visited there so I got on LinkedIn and thanks to my pretty sizable LinkedIn network I was able to write a, an invitation to a woman in Chicago who's in charge of 
the second largest, the US operation of the second largest cement company in the world. And I said, I'm a professor at NYU and our trip was canceled and we would really, we really need to learn more about the cement industry. Would you possibly speak to our students? And she agreed and spent an hour with us on Zoom. And I also found the cement industry analyst at McKinsey, of all places, a guy who lives in Hanover, Germany, and he agreed to speak to the students. So I'm sort of telling you more than you need to know, but my point is that that network on LinkedIn, I would never have been able to, one, find these people, and second, to reach out to them, if not for the LinkedIn network. It's a treasure. Uh, yeah, no, I agree. We, you know, and that's the first that we've heard, I think, AJ, about uh, something as little as a photo. You know, that, that's, that's inspiring there because, you know, a lot of people were just the messaging. But yeah, something as little as you're right. No photo, you know, no click. Like, I'm not clicking on that. It's, uh, or, or, ah, that's a good message there. You know, Ruth, another question in regards to, uh, I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you about, you know, students and, you know, your involvement as a professor. What's some of your advice for, you know, students, current college students who are, you know, pursuing marketing, some advice you'd give them? Yeah, great point. Uh, the, most of the, the MBA students or the undergrad business students are pretty aware that the way you get a job is by, is by who you know. And that's the reason they're going, one of the reasons they're going to business school, not only for the credential, but for the network. So I say that these students will do well when they're still in their student era to build that network in a, in a, a diligent and professional way. So if they go to a networking event, whether online or face-to-face -face, and meet someone, they should send a follow-up note. Oh, yesterday, would you please link with me? And, or write them an email if they've gotten, you know, to, the, to that level of, of um, connection. And then to nurture that relationship over time, maybe every quarter or something, send out a note saying, hi, I'm about to graduate, or hi, what, I, noticed, I saw this article about your industry, or otherwise stay in touch. And um, I think that's a skill that is developed through two things, one practice <laughs> and the other awareness of how valuable it is. I, I think the younger students are not really clear on how important who you know is versus what you know. Would you agree, Vincent? Absolutely, yeah. Yeah. What about you, AJ? I would agree with yeah, that. Yeah, you know, I think probably when I was in college, I was one of those people that really didn't know that. So I thought you sent out your resumes and you got a job. And unfortunately, I uh, graduated in 2005, which is uh, right around kind of the financial crisis. Mm, bad timing. Yeah, bad <laughs> timing. <laughs> so I was like, oh, so you just send resumes, hundreds of them, and you just never hear back. So that's how it goes. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So right. I think it's a skill that most schools don't really teach. I mean, they have this career advice center that you go to to get your resumes fixed, but it's really not an active part of your student life. And in reality, I think they should be that should be probably the most important thing 
college teaches you is how to uh, monetize your skills. So I yeah. definitely, definitely agree. So speaking of college, Ruth, uh, wh- how did you get, uh, you know, I, I, I heard you ended up in Japan somehow. So yeah. I'd love to hear the story of what happened after college. Oh, thanks. Yeah, I, I went into the family business after, after graduating from Kirkland College in outside of Utica, New York. It's now known as Hamilton College. Oh, and okay. uh, the family business was high school education. <laughs> My father was headmaster of a boys boarding school in Western Massachusetts. And so stupidly, I went to teach in a boys boarding school. Ugh. And <laughs> being 22, it, I was just not a fit there. And I was sort of desperate to get gone. So I ran away to Japan where (laughs) I found a job teaching English in a beautiful city on the Japan Sea coast called, the city was called Kanazawa. It was about 400,000 people and uh, had a lot of historic and artistic uh, history and richness. It was pretty much off the beaten tourist track at the time and Uh, I stayed for a year and then I liked it so much I stayed for another year and sometime around my second year I I noticed I was having a lot of visitors because I I went down to Tokyo or is as they say in Japan up to Tokyo because that's where the emperor is you go up to Tokyo Um, for during the summer to I was you know teaching English in, in the school system and uh, I went up to Tokyo to language school during the summer, and I met a lot of foreigners, and they all wanted to visit Kanazawa. It was pretty unknown at the time, and they would come stay in my little apartment, and I I sort of got tired of showing them around, so I started making some notes about uh, here's where you go, trying to get them to be more self-guiding, and those notes I started to turn into a kind of pamphlet. And then I eventually ended up producing a book about this beautiful Japanese city for foreign visitors. And the book was published locally by a bunch of business people who thought it would be a good idea to promote Kanazawa to the world and get more tourism there. And it was an instant bestseller to to the astonishment of everyone, including the large bookseller in Tokyo who had turned me down for distribution. <laughs> he said, oh, this will never, <laughs> never work. He actually gave me a call after the book hit the bestseller list and, and I graciously allowed him to distribute the book after that. But anyway, on the strength of that book's publication, about two years later, I was offered a uh, actually six months later, I was offered an editorship in a publishing company in Tokyo. And after two years there, they sent me to New York to open a marketing office. So that's how I sort of turned my, my time in Japan into the beginnings of a, of a career in the US. And I attended MBA school, business school at Columbia during, the, during that period. And, and then joined Book of the Month Club at a Time Warner division, which I, I thought I was entering one of the great book marketing businesses in, in the world, a great brand Book of the Month Club, right? 
And I learned on the first day, no, you have, you have just joined one of the great direct marketing, database mm -hmm. marketing companies in the world. And I was like a fish in water at that company. I learned everything I could about direct and database marketing. And I was responsible for recruiting new members to the special interest book clubs. There was a cooking and crafts club, a business book club, a, a sailing book club, believe it or not, and a history book club and, and others. And my job was to entice members to join and calculate the expected lifetime value of those members and make sure that we had a positive ROI on that member acquisition. And, you know, that's the essence of customer marketing and immediately applicable in on the B2B side to lead generation. Mm -hmm. so, has the uh, book club lucky. survived or has it demised due to lack of uh, readership these days? They, I would say uh, in, in general terms, no, they have not survived. There are some pockets here and there. There is a digital book of the month club still in existence run by, I think, a bunch of uh, VCs who probably do it as a labor of love. It was really e-commerce that, that killed it. Got it. Now, so, Ruth, uh, you know, speaking of that, you know, it's a, on the consumer side, the B2C side, they've always kind of had that direct to consumer subscription model. Speaking of like book of the month club has done it before, you know, so many companies started doing it. Now B2B is kind of moving into the subscription model, mm -hmm. the, you know, Listen, you know, software the, as a service. SaaS, yes, SaaS model. It. You know, how, how do you it, feel yeah. about, what are your thoughts about that? I'm thrilled. It's an excellent way to sell because mm -hmm. once you have the customer buying from you on an automated, regular way, your cost of sales plummets and the, the power of inertia the advantage of the power of inertia shifts from the vendor to the buyer. So, you know, I'm sorry, from the buyer to the vendor, excuse me. So, you know, they, if they want to cancel, they have to take the initiative to cancel. And of course in B2B, the difficulty of canceling is even worse because you have to change all your IT and your processes and your methods. So um, software as a service is great, but it also applies, Vincent, in other lesser known areas like product replenishment. You know, you can have like Staples, Amazon business for business are all on, on top of this. We'll send you a carton of toner and copy paper every month and you just sit back and it'll arrive. That kind of um, continuity program is very popular and e-commerce is exploding in B2B now. There are marketplaces like Alibaba and Amazon business that are grabbing a larger and larger share of the procurement budget. Um, the companies that have exclusive reseller deals are including their resellers in their e-commerce business, making it sure, making sure that the channel conflict matter is managed and everyone's getting a piece of the pie. But there are certain products that 
really lend themselves to e-commerce, like replacement parts. You don't want a skilled, expensive salesperson selling replacement parts. That makes absolutely no sense. And the other interesting thing that's happening e-commerce-wise in business is in complex sales environments where you can't possibly close a deal through e-commerce, you need a sales engagement in the buying process but pieces of that can be automated through the internet. So like Vincent, you're on, on uh, the phone with a customer and you, you, you get the customer interested enough to place an order and you say, well, here's our convenient uh, or ordering uh, uh, quote, quote requesting tool. So please just click here and you know, we'll get you that quote right away. And, and that kind of, you know, sort of, pieces of the B2B buying process can be automated online to make the customer happier and reduce costs on the vendor side. So opportunities are everywhere. Yeah, and absolutely. And, uh, you know, we just have a few minutes left, Ruth. Uh -huh. I want to, uh, you know, I have one more question then, uh, you know, AJ could uh, have his final thoughts and then you, of course, uh, you know, you mentioned the uh, book about local travel in the area of Japan. We also talked about trade show and event marketing plan, promote profit. I want to talk about your other book, you know, B2B data-driven marketing sources, uses, results, maximizing lead generation, the complete guide for B2B oh, marketers. Oh my goodness. You know, I know like, there's, yeah. <laughs> there's one of those, uh, one of each of those books on the shelves in the Starista headquarters office. Sure um, is. I also have them here in, in my uh, home office, but it's across the room, so I'm not gonna hold them up. But I've really had a lot of fun uh, identifying you know, needs in the, in the B2B marketplace and, and producing a book to meet those. I've, um, and now Ajay has just given me a new idea for a book project. Hmm. I'll uh, maybe <laughs> pursue that, but um, yeah, I'm, I have actually built little websites for the uh, the most recent books, the b2bdatadrivenmarketing.com website can offer a download of the first two chapters for all comers for free, of course. And uh, maximizingleadgeneration.com also has its own website with a free chapter for the taking. So thanks for giving me an opportunity to promote my books, Vincent. That's very nice. Send me a bill, please. I sure will. Uh, with my new sleek ordering system, quote system that you gave us the idea for. So that's great. <laughs> <laughs> right. Well, Ruth, thank you for being on our podcast. It's been a pleasure having known you for about 10 years now. So time has, uh, time has flown by and, uh, Kind of any last thoughts on the future of marketing, how you see things uh, being different 10 years from now than they were 10 years ago? Obviously, we had book clubs, an extinct species. So that's right. And I uh, always, in response to a question like that, I also, I always quote my friend and colleague, Bernice Grossman, who says, My crystal ball is still on back order. <laughs> the great Bernice Grossman. Love it. But what I what I do know is that buyers are going to change. The world is going to continue to change, and it's our job as sellers to continue to adapt. And I feel confident that we will. 
So I'm, I'm still optimistic, hoping for the best and um, looking forward to the time when I can get on a plane and head down to San Antonio for some of those amazing tacos. We look forward to that as well. Uh, absolutely. I do as well. Uh, AJ and I have another uh, ping pong game to play that he's dying to play me oh, against. Yes. I know he is. He's been training. I, I, I even have cats <laughs> now out. to bring you down. Yeah, he, he's going to throw some <laughs> cats at my face because I'm allergic. You know, he'll try to beat me. <laughs> Ruth was there for that uh, at the holiday event. But Ruth, this has been awesome. I love this. Thank it's you, a guys. Couple of friends talking. This has been another episode of The Marketing Stir. Our thank you so much. I am your host, Vincent Petrofessa. That's AJ Gupta. She's Ruth Stevens. Thank you, and we'll talk soon. Take care. Thanks for listening to The Marketing Stir podcast by Starista. Please like, rate, and subscribe. If you're interested in being a guest on the podcast, email us at info at themarketingstir.com. Thanks for listening.